Morning, everyone. We are in the second week of our Beatitude series, and so our reading today again is from Matthew 5. If you've got a Bible with you, please open up to Matthew 5, uh, or it will be on the screen behind if you haven't got one with you. Uh, Matthew 5, uh, it's entitled in most Bibles, The Sermon on the Mount, but as you know, we're focusing solely on these Beatitudes, uh, these statements of blessing that Jesus pronounces for those who follow him. Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who, who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's just take a moment to pray before we come to God's Word together. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you that you are present with us. You are here, the creator and sustainer of all things is here. And so, Father, we gather to worship you. We gather to hear from you. We gather for your spirit to move amongst us. And so we pray for that. We pray that the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, would now move amongst us as we listen to your word preached. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the inspired nature of it, its inerrancy. Father, not one, not one word we have here, not one word we have is not supposed to be here. It is from you. It is your revealed will. It is your story. It's shows us who we are. It shows us who you are. And so, Father, we pray that through the person of the Spirit, you would help us today to see all of those things clearly. And we thank you, Father, for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray that he would be glorified again as your word is opened up. Father, we pray today for those who suffer. We pray for those who have uh, been bereaved in recent weeks. Father, we pray that you would comfort them. Uh, Father, we thank you for Scripture that tells us that you are close to the brokenhearted. So today we pray again for the McGowan family. We pray for Leslie especially. Just pray you'll be with him and be close to him and comfort him. We pray for Cherith. 
Father, we pray that you would be close to the brokenhearted and you would comfort. Thank you for the grace that you show us in all seasons of life. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So today we come to the, the second of our, our study, the second of our studies in the Beatitudes. And I want to just say before we actually get to the text this morning, one of the things that we value in Cornerstone here, one of the things that we value most is, is exposition of the Scriptures, uh, teaching of the Scriptures. And one of the most important things when it comes to teaching the Scriptures and understanding the Scriptures is the context to which the Scriptures were written. You hear me go on about that all the time. Who's it written to? Where is it written to? What church is it written to? For example, Corinthians. What's going on in the church? What's happening? Uh, One of the most important things when it comes to understanding the Bible is context. And understanding the Beatitudes is no different. We need to understand the context to which they were said and to who they were said so that we understand then and we can apply them to our lives. And so understanding that Jesus begins the Beatitudes with a promise of blessing to those who follow him. Remember I said last week, if we read it, very, we'll see it very clearly at the beginning of Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. He, 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 he left the crowds. He went to the mountain. He sat down. His disciples gathered around him, and he began to teach them. So the context is really important. The context is that Jesus is teaching his disciples, those who are following him. And so if we realize that, and we realize that these these lists of, of blessings that Jesus pronounces over his disciples are for that exactly, his disciples, it will help us to avoid a fundamental error when it comes to the teaching of Jesus. The reality is this. The Sermon on the Mount as a whole is well known outside the church. The Beatitudes are often embraced as promises of blessing for everyone. To all people, regardless of their religious convictions, regardless of their state in in following Jesus or not following Jesus, The Beatitudes are often taken as this blessing over all people. But we really need to remember who Jesus is speaking to here. As he gives these blessings of the kingdom. They are blessings of the kingdom. And the blessings of heaven and the blessings of the kingdom belong only to those who have repented of sin and trusted in Jesus. The Beatitudes are not promises of blessing to everyone. That's really important. They are promises for Christians. They are promises for those who Jesus says will take up their cross daily and follow Him. That's who they're for. The disciples, not the crowds, the disciples. And following on from last week's analogy of Spurgeon's first rung uh, of those being poor in spirit, 
Spurgeon gave that analogy of the ladder and the first rung being easily accessible is those who are poor in spirit. The next obvious rung is the one that we come to today. The next obvious rung is the one we come to today. But it's only obvious if we remember who Jesus is speaking to. Here's the reality. No one wants to mourn. Our text today says this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The reality is that not one of us in this room want to mourn. No one wants to be sad. Everyone wants to be happy. And here Jesus says, the blessing of the kingdom rests on those who mourn. Surely he's got this one wrong. Surely he's, he's this, how can you be blessed in mourning? It's a paradox. It doesn't make any sense. But for it to make sense, we need to go with the context and the flow of what Jesus is teaching. What has happened in the past and possibly how you've heard this text explained or where you've heard this text explained is in the context of death. Blessed are those who mourn. Where have you heard it? A funeral. The only problem with that is it's completely out of context. It's completely out of context. What would be the most appropriate response to realizing you are spiritually bankrupt? What would be the most appropriate response to realizing that you have nothing to offer, that your sins are going to condemn you, and that you are bound for hell apart from Christ? What would be the most appropriate response to that, to realizing that all our works are like filthy rags before God? What would be the only appropriate response? Would the, would the appropriate response to be celebration and happiness? No. The only appropriate response to realizing our position before God is to what? Mourn. Our only appropriate response to realize our position before God without Christ is to mourn. You see, Jesus is not, and I, I, I'm going to state this very clearly, Jesus is not primarily saying there is blessings for those who mourn, mourn in the context of death. What he's speaking about here is those who are grief-stricken over sin. People who realize or recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, the grief Jesus, the mourning that Jesus is describing here is those who mourn over their own sinfulness. That might come as a surprise to you. As I say, the most common context where you'll hear this verse is in the context of the death of a loved one or a funeral or, or, or just a pronouncement of general blessing for those who mourn. And we'll, get to, we'll get to it at the end, and I'll, or I'll reiterate. Hear me. God does comfort those who, are, who have lost loved ones. 
There's no doubt about that. But that's not the context of the Beatitudes. The context of the Beatitudes is that God is saying, Jesus is saying, there is blessings for those who mourn over their sin. And here's the reality. We should mourn over our sin. We should mourn over our sin. Because sin is pervasive. It is deadly. What sinning essentially is, is believing a false promise from the world that whatever it is, is greater than having God. And all of our sins find their root, find their, find their place to grow in our hearts. I think it was Spurgeon said, actually, pride is the mother of all sin. It's out of a prideful heart that all sin flows. And all sin grows. Now, in our lives, what we like to do is we like to compartmentalize our sin. Yes? We, we like to think that, that our sin, we, we put our sins into categories. Some, of, some sins are like, like obvious and, and blatantly discouraged, and they're the big ones. They're the, they're the murder, they're the, the adultery, they're, the, they're, all the, they're all the really, really big ones, right? And, and, and they're to be discouraged and they're to be acted against. Some are not so obvious and actually can be deceptively praised. The humble brag that we talked about last week. And then there are other sins that are just accepted as common, not to be bothered about at all. I joke sometimes, and I'm guilty of this. Trust me, I am guilty of this. But what would you say would be one of the most acceptable sins in the church? I'm not asking for it. It's a rhetorical one, by the way. What do we do, right? I'll, I'll say that. What do we do every time we have, for example, a, a gathering of some sort, like a, a baptism or a, like, what do we do? We do what? We eat. And boy, do we eat. We're good at that. We're really good. This is something good. Cornerstone is really good at this, right? But gluttony in Scripture is a sin. It is the, mo the most socially acceptable sin in the church. When's the last time? Now, I dare anybody to do this, right? I dare somebody to do this, right? I actually shouldn't do that because you'll do it. Uh, but walk up to challenge somebody on their gluttony. Now, if somebody killed somebody, would you challenge them on that? I'd like to think you would. But we're not so good at challenging on the, the socially, culturally acceptable stuff. We compartmentalize our sin. Folks, here's the reality. We are far too hospitable with our sin. We are far too hospitable with our sin. When was the last time, when was the last time you or I looked in the mirror and saw our sin and wept and mourned over it?
When was the last time we came away broken, realizing that we are sinful? When was the last time that we felt the gravity of our sin? Jonathan Edwards, one of the great American pastor theologians from the 1700s, said this, that as a Christian, I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and my badness of my heart than I ever had before my conviction. Let me read that again. As a Christian, I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and badness of my heart than I ever had before my conviction. Folks, that should be the reality of our experience. If it is not, I dare say we are not listening to the, to the person of the Holy Spirit. We are not listening to the convicting voice of the Spirit. The book of James was written to encourage believers back to faithful living instead of sinful wandering. And, and, and at the height of James's letter, James cries out to believers to see their sin rightly and act accordingly. This is what he says. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. James was a bit of crack, wasn't he? James wanted the readers that he was writing to to feel the weight of their sin. To feel the gravity of their sin and to mourn over it. But why should we? Why should we as believers weep over our sin? Why should we mourn our sin? Why does Jesus say here, Blessed are those who mourn, who feel the gravity of it, for they shall be comforted. Why does he say that? Well, the reason we should grieve and mourn over our sin is simply this. Because it grieves God. You see, our sin is not just against ourselves. Our sin is not just against others. Our sin is primarily against God. It's against God. We know, well, most of us probably know the example of David, King David. David is called a man after God's own heart. But David, King David, commits adultery. Basically then, in covering it up, sets up a murder. So things, you know, I, I, I mentioned two of the big ones there a minute ago. That, that's, two, that's two out of two for King David. Right? What does he say? in his prayer of repentance. He says this, I have sinned against you and you only. Now, Uriah might have something to say about that. I have sinned against you and you only. David's cry, David's prayer of repentance was heartfelt because he knew he had sinned against God. 
against God. And folks, we just finished our series in Revelation, and one of the takeaways of Revelation surely is this. God is holy. God is righteous, and He cannot stand sin. And so all of our sin is primarily against Him. The Bible tells us, and we need to be careful when we're thinking about repentance, when we think about sin and then we think about repentance, the Bible is very, very clear that there are two types of of grief when it comes to sin. There is godly mourning, and there is ungodly mourning. There is a mourning over sin that brings no comfort, and there is a mourning over sin that brings comfort. Many will weep over their sin, and they will never be comforted. Think of, think of Judas in the Scriptures. Think he, he wept and he mourned over his sin, but he was not comforted. Why? Because he felt sorry for who? Himself. He only ever felt sorry for himself. And then you think of, you think of the contrast between Judas and Peter. Peter, who denies Christ three times, sells him down the river, more or less, repents, and is accepted back in. Judas never does that. Paul, talking to the church in in, in Corinth, says this, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We often see examples of, of, of ungodly grief, of people who just feel sorry for themselves. And it's often because they've been caught out. That's the reality. It often comes on the back of being caught out and doing something wrong. So they're awful sorry for themselves, and they, and they weep and they mourn, and they, and they what we would call navel gaze, and they, they'll just feel really sorry for themselves in a lot of ways. But it doesn't lead to action. It doesn't lead to change. An apology is often a shallow one, and a sorrow that grieves only for the consequences of their sin. They've been caught. Genuine, godly repentance leads to change. Change. In theological terms, we call repentance that's motivated simply by punishment as attrition, whereas contrition or attrition, whereas contrition is real repentance. And R.C. Sproul puts it like this, it is generated by a profound sorrow from the soul in which we are heartily sorry for our sins and we desire to change. Folks, it is a work of grace that produces godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And it leads to a restored relationship with the Father. Because here we see Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus said, those who mourn and grieve over their sin will be comforted. Promise. 
These people will experience the comfort of God, his pardon, his deliverance, his strengthening, his reassurance. He, be- he, he belongs to them as they mourn in their sin. Again, the gospel is full of these like paradoxical statements. It's amazing that just when a person knows, when, when, when a person knows that they're, 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 they've nothing to bring, when a person knows they're spiritually bankrupt, when they have nothing to put on the table, and they're, and they're mourning and they're grieving over that fact, God steps in and comforts them in that mourning. So we should mourn over our sin. A wrong view of sin and, and you'll find this an odd paradoxical statement, but just an opposite statement, basically. So my first point there is we should mourn over our sin. My second point is this. A wrong view of sin stunts our joy. How? How on earth can that be? A wrong view of sin stunts our joy. You see, unfortunately, the kind of mourning that I've just talked about, the kind of mourning over our sin that leads to repentance, that leads to change, is sadly missing in the church. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the best preachers to ever come out of the British Isles in the 1900s, wrote this, I cannot help feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective sense of the doctrine of sin. And he went on to say this, that the flip side of that is that we all also don't have a true nature of Christian joy. He says, don't you see they are related? Because if we don't have great mourning over our grief, and grief over our sins, we don't experience the great comfort and joy in forgiveness. Christian joy, I would say, and this is only my opinion, is one of the most misunderstood things that there are in the world. People believe Christian joy to be jazz hands and smiley faces. Obviously, I have been endowed with both. Uh, Not. Uh, But people think that's what Christian joy is. Smiley, happy all the time, jazz hands, giving it all of that. It's not. Christian joy is realizing that we are sinners. Realizing that we are so sinful, wretched, naked, pitiful, blind. And realizing that we can be forgiven for that. If that does not produce joy in us, I dare say we're not Christians. That's where we find joy. Real joy, lasting joy. Because you know what? When you wake up tomorrow, it'll be the same. It's not fleeting. And the next day after that, and the year after that, and the year after that, you never graduate from this stuff. That's why you never graduate from the gospel. That's why we never move past the gospel. Because that's what brings joy. A new break brings me happiness, which is fleeting which in six months I'll want another one. The gospel is not like that. The gospel brings joy every day, 
for the rest of our lives because we realize we're sinners and we have forgiveness. That's true joy. That's real joy. Deep, deep, deep joy. There's a song about that. I'm not going to sing it, but that's what joy is. The mourner will be comforted. But real repentance, folks, leads to change. Real repentance leads to change. An inward conviction of sin that leads you to action is real repentance. Many people don't understand this. Many people think conviction of sin is just feeling bad. Feeling bad about their sin, that's what God wants, right? It's not. That's not what God wants. God just doesn't want, as I said, navel gaze. God doesn't just want us to feel bad about our sin. God wants us to be convicted of our sin so that He can and, and, and change us. That's what He wants. Paul makes this clear in, in 2 Corinthians 7 when he says, I now rejoice. Listen to that. I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Do you see the difference? Paul says, I now rejoice, not that you were just sad about your sin, but that you were sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, for the sorrow that is according to God produces repentance, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul saying here again that there's a kind of worldly sorrow for sin, feeling bad for what you've done that never really changes anything. No one knows this, right? No one knows this better than my wife, right? No one knows this better than my wife. Because I will do something wrong, right? And I will say sorry. Now, after the 20th time of doing the same thing and saying sorry, Julie will usually step in and say, but are you going to change something? And I will say no. I will do the same thing again inevitably. But it is real repentance produces change. Some of you will say, I feel really bad about my sin. I feel really bad about the sin in my life today. Well, let me say, feeling bad can be a first step. But if you want to have biblical mourning over your sin, a godly sorrow that, that comes with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You will not only need to feel bad about it, but you will need to do something about it. You will not only need to feel bad about it, but you will need to do something about it. And I have no doubt, absolutely no doubt, that in this room today, the Holy Spirit will be speaking to people about their sin. He will be convicting people of sin. He will be convicting people of, of things said. He will be convicting people of things done. He will be convicting people of attitudes held. He will be convicting people of sin. And you have a choice to make. 
And the choice is this. Worldly grief, navel-gazing, feeling bad for yourself, or godly repentance that leads to change. That's your choice. What I would suggest, very practical steps, is that if you do feel convicted about sin today, if you are feeling convicted about sin today, tell someone. Speak to someone. You don't need to tell them what it is, but just, just say you're feeling convicted about sin and you want them to hold you accountable for change. Write it down. Do something. Act. There will, be, there will be prayer ministry at the front afterwards. Act today. Don't just navel gaze. So we should mourn over our own sin. Why? Because it grieves God. It grieves God. Why? Because we should grieve over our own sin because it will produce joy, actually. But we should also grieve over the sins of the world around us. When Jesus says here, blessed are those who mourn, he's talking about grieving over our own sin, but he's also talking about grieving over the sin of the world around us. You should mourn over the sin we see around us. Societal sin and the world sin are all around us, folks. And sometimes, and I'll confess I'm guilty of this, sometimes as Christians we can stick our heads in the sand and let on it's not happening. Because as long as it doesn't affect me and my wee bubble, let them tear away. Sometimes we have that attitude. As long as it doesn't affect me and my wee bubble, let them tear away. What business is it of mine? Let them tear away. But no, we should mourn and we should weep over the sins of the world around us. In fact, the fact is this. Those of us who claim to be Christians and do not mourn about the sins of the world around us get rebuked in Scripture. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, when he's writing to the Corinthian church about how they are tolerant, what they were allowing people to do in the church, they were allowing immorality to go on within the church, and they were tolerant of it. And Paul rebukes them. He says, you have become arrogant, and you have not mourned. Instead, so that the one who has done this deed should be removed from your midst. And he was saying that the church members should mourn the sins of their fellow members. Mourn for the sin that we see around us. But again, the mourning for the sin that we see around us is just like mourning for our own sin. It is only godly, it is only spirit-produced if it leads to action. It's not just feeling bad. When Paul told the Corinthian church that they should mourn over the sin of this church member, he didn't say, do you know what, just mourn over it and that'll be grand. No, what he said was, put them outside the church, take action, do something. 
In Romans 9, Paul speaks of how he had unceasing grief in his heart for his unsaved countrymen. Paul looked at the Jews and, and mourned and wept over their sin and how they were rejecting Jesus. But what did it lead him to do? Did he sit in his corner and say, oh, it's terrible about the Jews, awful. They're not, they're not accepting Jesus. I'll weep, I'll mourn. No, it produced action. He went. One of the greatest missionaries of all time, if not the greatest missionary of all time, greatest church planter of all time, Paul went. This grief that he saw for the sins of the world around him produced a go, an action. And so it's all well and good. I hear it all the time. I, I hear it all the time. Oh, uh, do you know what? I have such a heart for this. I have such a heart for that. Oh, they have such a heart for that. Oh, they have such a heart for that. If it doesn't produce action, it's not worth a spit. Well, we want to see people saved such and such a place. Well, go then. I have a heart for the people of... You can get plane tickets. Real repentance, real grief over sin or produces action. Action. We should mourn over our own sin. We should mourn over the sin of the world around us. And I want to come back to this just before we finish. We should mourn, and it's right to mourn, over the death of loved ones, friends. And even though the particular context here is not that, Jesus is specifically saying here, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And that is those who mourn over their sin. They will be comforted. But elsewhere in Scripture, just so that we're not going away and saying, oh, well, there's no comfort for those who mourn in, in the death of a loved one. That's not true. As I say, Scripture says that God is close to the brokenhearted. Of course, those who turn to Him in loss of a loved one or a friend will be comforted. No doubt about that. It's just not what the Beatitudes mean. It's just not what the Beatitudes mean. So, there is a promise here for those who mourn. And the promise is this. They will be comforted. How will they be comforted? Well, essentially, it's the gospel, isn't it? Those who are realize they are spiritually poor. Those who realize they are poor in spirit and have nothing to bring to the table. Those who from that point go on to mourn their sin are met with the glorious good news of the gospel. They are met with a Savior who loves them. They are met with a Savior who will forgive them. They are met with a Savior who will care for them. That's how they will be comforted. Scripture tells us that when we confess our sin, He is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sin. And so the question for us today as we close is this. Will you allow the conviction of the person of the Holy Spirit lead you to action? Not talk. Not even prayer. Action. It's great to have prayer ministry here. We have prayer ministry in Cornerstone. It's great to have it. Brilliant. Avail of it today. But don't leave it here. Don't leave it here. Don't leave it in this room. Act upon it. Act upon it. If you're feeling convicted over sin, repent. Turn to Christ in faith again and act upon it. If you need to stop something, stop it. If you need to start something, start it. If you need to go somewhere, go. If you need to forgive someone, forgive someone. Do what you need to do, or this will be useless. It's not rocket science. It's pretty simple. Let the Holy Spirit work in your life and lead you to godly repentance today. Blessed are those who mourn. If you mourn over your sin today, you will. You can, the promise is there. You will be comforted. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray. That the third person of the Trinity the person of the Spirit, would move amongst us and lead us to genuine repentance. Help us to see our sin because we do not see it. Help us to see it. Help us to turn from it. And help us to love you for your forgiveness. You're a loving Father. You sent the perfect son to bring us to repentance. Have your way amongst us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.